welcome to Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. In this episode, myself and Judy Farron Bradley interview Julian Harrop. Judy is the course leader of our Historic Building Conservation course here in Kingston. It's a key part of the family of courses we offer in architecture, landscape and the built environment. Of course, there's value in those who design new buildings in the built environment, but equally valuable are those who care for and who tend and maintain the buildings which are the extant part of our fabric. Of course, in the main, these are people managing the buildings they own, but in particular cases, this requires a heightened skill, and this is where the world of conservation steps in. This is not a passive conversation. Frequently, uh, ideas and discoveries within conservation practice have informed mainstream architectural uh, ideas. Over the last 200 years, various impulses within conservation have informed wider architectural discourses. And our guest, Julian Harrop, is no stranger to this. He is one of the leading thinkers and makers in the world of conservation architecture in the world today. And in the work that he has done with Sone, but, but more particularly the work he has done with David Chipperfield on the Neues Museum, can be seen tracking through a wide range of European practices engaging with the fabric of our cities. In this conversation, Julian takes us through his views on the duties of a conservation architect and their responsibilities both to the buildings and the societies they serve with an understanding of those societies within a broader temporal frame than our present tense condition. And he also takes us through his own biography and how he found his way to this subject, starting from his roots in London to his encounters with Jim Sterling and then his own steps into setting up his own practice. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Kingston School of Art, Julian. Thank you for joining us. It's a delight to be here again and to see what a bustling institution it is. I wade through architectural models to get to your studio. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm joined also today by Judy Farron Bladley, who is the head of our Historical and Conservation course. So thank you, Judy. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. Good to have you here. I mean, I think this is the context for the discussion, is that we have a department where, well, the architectural course is very concerned about the fundamental value of architecture as being reposed in the built artefacts which put, get built in the world, right, by our students. And of course, that makes a natural link to historic building conservation and to landscape architecture and other parts of the course. But I think I just wanted to say, first of all, the reason why we would invite you, Julian, is that I think that... When we look at the work of your practice and the contribution to thinking that it has made manifest through the various projects over the last you know, decades, really, the fact of the matter is, is that conservation thinking is proving to be very influential on the discourse of architecture generally, right? So if we take the approach to the Noise Museum or something like that, which and we look at contemporary practice working in found spaces, I see a lineage of thinking where thinking coming from a conservation background is actually informing theoretical approaches in mainstream architectural discourse. And I'm just wondering whether that's something that you are uh, aware of or interested in? or um, I think what I would say is that I'm nervous to endorse it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think that um, it's so easy to be at a school of architecture and be concerned with images and so much of the work of the student today is creating those CGI's which are a vision and they almost happen before design Mm. and they adopt 
uh, a collection of uh, items from a palette. And, if I may say, conservation is one of those uh, factors which you look up an image and you plant it on. And I don't wish to be too antagonistic or discursive about it, but what I think is that it's the ideas behind what the interventions are in perhaps one or two exemplars of architecture that I'm more concerned about than going in every cafe in East London and finding a bare brick wall (laughs) badly badly stripped of its plaster, badly um, pointed, go to the Whitechapel Art Gallery and you have um, John Miller's conversion of the gallery altered and changed and it had reached a very satisfactory repose and then you get the amalgamation of the Institute building alongside And they're two buildings which still don't talk to one another. It doesn't create one unity. What it creates is two damaged singularities. Mm. And I, I, I feel that if the ideas of intervention within the 19th century institute had dealt with the staircase in a contextual way, then I believe that we wouldn't be so lost with two entrance desks, one behind the entrance through the institute by the cafe and the the little private dining room, and then the other through the wonderful arch uh, of the original design. One is a grand entrance, the other is just a modest entrance, and yet you come into a space which has no definition and the fragments of two buildings attacked. I only use that as a vehicle perhaps to try and answer your question. (laughs) No, but it's a useful one I think because in some respects the conversation that you're seeking there is in many ways a bolder and a braver one in terms of extant fabric perhaps than maybe what is existing. Is that what I'm reading a little I bit? Think, I think what I'm saying is that it, the, the fundamental issue, do you understand the building into which you are bringing intervention, conservation, alteration, adaption, mm. or whatever? And in that instance, neither building was understood, nor was the palancestrous sequence of alteration by very distinguished practitioners who'd brought something and added something to the Whitechapel, the authors are great friends of mine and I would say to them what I say to you. (laughs) (laughs) And in terms of, like, just before we go back to where your thinking comes from and where your evolution as an architect has brought you to, uh, what I observe is that I suppose it's a quote from Herman Czech, I think, where he says, all architects are caught in the hand of an older architect who they can't speak with anymore. Sometimes it's a dead architect, and sometimes it's that very same architect five years previously, or even six months previously, where you get caught in your own design decisions. In some senses, what we're talking about here is a clear-sightedness, an ability to see somehow without prejudice, to understand things with sensitivity and be acute then in how we might act, which is a really big question. I mean, um, 
the pace of architectural production and also the nature of how these things happen don't really give us those moments of pause. In the evolution of your thinking, where did you study and how did you come to develop your views on conservation and architecture more generally? I'll, I'll take that <laughs> last part of your questions second. Yeah. The first part, I'll just give a little immediate response to the the fact that you're always working on other people's work. Yeah. The, f- the first thing I would say is anybody who's been before you must be treated with the utmost respect, care and acknowledgement. And so frequently I see an intervention in a building fabric which hasn't been motivated by respect for the predecessor, but it's almost an attack on the predecessor. Mm. How can we impose a, a particular view about what the building should be, what the function should be, how it should be integrated into an existing structure in a way which banishes the original concept? And uh, Zaha's Rotterdam... Uh, port office seems to me to be an exemplar of that and I worked with her on the munitions store um, by the Serpentine Gallery and I was I found that I wasn't able to express the the nature of the munitions store that we were actually converting into a gallery Mm. could we keep the patination of weathering on the inside against which objects could be expressed and exposed or did it all just have to be painted white because art is so poor that it only looks good against white. (laughs) A little bit uh, tendentious but on the other hand I do see that Works of art need a context, and that context can be a building which has real character, and you manipulate that character or the works of art to come together in a unity. All galleries need um, lighting and ventilation and servicing, of course, but there's no need to put a great white slab down the roof of the existing galleries, Mm. as happens there. On the other hand, move through from the old building to the new cafe, and it's a delight. It's a wonderful exercise, like a a lady's hat that's somehow blown against the side of an existing brick structure. Where I pick up the respect for the existing, I use this as a a vehicle to explain a misunderstanding of the existing. If you go to down the river to Rain and Marshes, there are two original munitions stores which are exactly the same as those on the Serpentine. And go inside and you can see the wooden cranes which were used for hoisting barrels of gunpowder. All that was in the gallery, the gallery at the Serpentine, and yet it was swept away. Mm. And so I think the existing building was diminished by subtraction. It was also diminished by addition. Mm. 
Yeah, no, I think this is, but this is the thing, isn't it? That, that one is concerned about legibility, right? And one's concerned about mm. intention. And then, and I think that's quite an egregious example, perhaps. Well, I, I because just trying to... Because there are also times, aren't there, where the careful and sensitive hand of the new edition is also a bold hand. I mean, I'm thinking of Scarpa's work, right? Casavecchio and things like that. I'm interested in what you think about that. <laughs> Do you see that as an egregious affront? Or? No, I don't. I think he was a fantastic architect and he just about got away with it. <laughs> but uh, but what I, I think we must understand that he came to a complete historic building and the first thing he did was ruinate it. Yeah. And then, using the intervention of ruination, he then, with great vocabulary of, of a new architecture, his architecture, he repaired the damage he'd done. And so, in a way, it would have been rather nicer if he'd got a building which wasn't damaged. And I worked on the, um, on the barracks, which are over the river yeah. from there, and there you have buildings in a state of complete collapse, walls out, roofs down, and so on. And I think that Scarpa would have pleased me more if he'd taken uh, damage and decay, which arises from natural processes, from the weather, from abandonment, even from desecration or damage, but to, to need to actually damage a building in order to demonstrate your virtuosity seems exceptional. Mm. And so while I admire him enormously, he doesn't come into my canon of conservation architects. I I had uh, the opportunity to work with um, Norman Foster on the um, back of Burlington House, the Gap Project, which is between the back of uh, the great 18th century um, uh, institutional building facing down onto Piccadilly. And then the exhibition gallery is built in the garden. And uh, Norman was sort of saying to me, well, I really admire Carlo Scarpa. And I said, well, we're not doing Carlo Scarpa here. What we're doing is we're, uh, we're exploiting a gap which exists to house pigeons and lavatories and decayed little ad- additions to the back of the exhibition galleries and the back of Burlington House and to make it a new armature through which we will rise to the Sackler galleries which are going to be re- reimagined on the top of Burlington House. Mm. The whole of that top floor was added by Penthorne and his galleries are beautifully constructed as a series of spaces and rooms. And so the space we were constrained with was really the back of Burlington House as an elevation to be discovered and recovered. And the great cliff-like wall of the exhibition galleries where the brickwork was so damaged that we refaced it in gaunts to support the polychrome cornice which ran from east to west Mm. at the above. And so I feel that while Norman admired Carlos Scarpa, he was willing to adopt 
a different approach to historic buildings with support and debate. Yeah, it's, I think where I was coming from earlier on um, was that if we take, say, um, Scarpa as an intriguing figure, because even when he builds completely new, like at Briand, yeah, there is the same sense of a fragmented world where yeah. things have been discovered and it seems that there's a fictional time built into his work, whereas first this, then this, then this. There seems to be a chronology implied in his tectonic, and it happens in his so-called conservation work as well, where a staircase would be laid over yes. seemingly an existing staircase, and you look underneath and you find that the existing staircase, which was totally fine, has been chiselled out to support this new staircase. So the the feeling he's going for is one of temporal dissonance, where multiple times are present at once. Right? Well, what he's doing is he's building history, yeah. face his, fake history, the palimpsestral sequence of intervention, uh, where you where you have a church altered in the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th centuries is a vocabulary which he wishes to explore. Yeah. So it's like he did at Castle Vecchia. He's building his own ruin in order to demonstrate virtuosity and command. And so in a sense he's saying that none of my buildings are of a time, but I actually create a lifetime backstory which gives them greater substance. I mean, you can't build a building without knowing what you're building on. Yeah. So you have a green field. Where does the sun rise? Where does it set? Does it slope? How does it drain? What sort of soil? What sort of landscape around it? And then you dig a hole and, oh, I've found a brick. Right, well, we've got archaeology. So we have on every new build site, a series of restraints and constraints, which he then perhaps exaggerates and manipulates in a design way. So he's manipulating archaeology and what we would call historic fabric of significance, mm. which is a, a wonderful um, exercise of, of intervention and creativity but it's not what I do. <laughs> oh, no, I get that. I do get that. But the, the, the reason I'm just, interested, I'm just interested in this discussion, I'm interested in uh, this talk about, I suppose, the new layers that one adds to the places that one is called to act. And I, I think that in this conversation, there's much in common between how an architect would act ideally and a conservation architect. They, the results might be very different, but this idea about contextual read is one that I find intriguing because... If we just jump now to your own work, can Sorry. I? Can yeah. I? Yeah. Could I just address the, what you said in your just a little yeah. earlier, which was that you're always working on other people's work. Yeah. I know Sir John Soane very well. Yeah. I've worked with him for thirty years, and I know how his moods got worse and worse the older he got. Because when he's an older gentleman, 1832, 1835, he's altering and changing his mind very rapidly. He must be giving a hell of a task to the, those who are building for him because 
when you look behind plaster, you see another story and perhaps a third story. And so when you come to conserve his work, where does reality exist? Is it what the final surface or is there a greater discovery behind? And that's where one has to use radar and, and other things to perhaps understand the sequence of the development of the design in the above-ground archaeological investigation. Mm. So that's Sir John, whom I know quite well. I also know Hawksmoor quite well, and Vanborough, and Robert Hooke, because having worked on their buildings, they're all different personalities, and I've never met some anybody as angry as Hawksmoor. He is just belligerently angry in the way in which, let's say, on St Anne's Church Tower, one of the three great Hawksmoor churches yeah. in East London, he willfully takes uh, moulded elements and misrepresents them, makes them large, makes them small, diminishes them. He plays games with a classical vocabulary which nobody else would have the force of personality to do. That's interesting, because uh, when you say, I agree with this reading of personality, but I don't see... Do you know the bit where you're talking about there, where Hawksmoor is playing so fast and loose? I don't feel anger so much as just an incredible freedom of some sort, a kind of an exuberance of skill, beyond I, dogma, right? Something I, else. I, I think what you're doing is giving him a self-confidence that I don't think he had. I think he was shouting for attention. Uh, my interpretation, and it's uh, ephemeral, but I think that with those three great churches, he had opportunities to really bring the attention of the monarch to his work. Gotcha. He is not as well educated as Wren. He doesn't have the ear of the king. He's not a gentleman. He is a struggling um, practitioner. And I see everything about the, the need to attract attention by uh, incorporating belligerence in his architecture. It's it. only how I feel, but standing on the scaffold and working with him <laughs> with you, yeah. for, year, for, for years, it, it sort of in, it, it insinuates. Kind of an insecurity is what you're yes, saying. Yes, uh, absolutely. And uh, a need to demonstrate that the vocabulary of classicism, which um, the state is promoting for there were to be 50 new churches, uh, but they, they're rather like... Um, a Polaris submarine in terms of the uh, uh, amount of treasure that they demanded, um, you, you see them being absolutely uh, overpowering to the state and the state gives up on the, <laughs> on the whole enterprise. Can I pick up on that? Because I found a, a quotation of yours, which is a terrible thing to do to kind of present something back, um, but it's absolutely fascinated me because of the role that you play working alongside 
other architects on major projects, but you described uh, looking at ideas for a building in Princelet Street in Spitalfields as that your role was to hold the architectural thread and to hold the ethos of the building, come what may, through talk about good times and bad times and all the things that you went through uh, with the client. But also, it sounds like it's an incredibly immersive experience for you, and is that your relationship with the architects that you work with on these projects? Do you feel you're there as the, the voice of the uh, architect that was there before the building? Uh, uh, you remind me of years past, thank you. <laughs> um, I know that building very well, and um, it... It was one of those projects where there were many difficulties and what you see me striving to do in that quotation is to try to explain my passion and responsibility for the 18th century house uh, facing the street and then the ruined synagogue in the garden behind. And you have it as a memorial of the transit of uh, communities of refugees into from the continent into England and then settling and becoming part of the, our community and this was a staging post so the building had seen so much that it wasn't just the physical fabric that one had to be conscious of but also to be conscious let's say the ladies' gallery in the synagogue meant that there was a big hole in the back of the 18th century house, which shouldn't, in an 18th century house, be there. But, of course, that intervention was part of the adaption and story. Um, and, therefore, it was uh, my duty to say to the structural engineer, no, you can't have that brick pier back, we have got to find a way of making the rather tired and overstressed timber lintel, which spans and provides that big new opening, give it new life and sustenance in order to support the sequence of the story that the house provides. But this thing about the thread of the project, so the, the kind of the intentionality of the project. I find this a really interesting place to, 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 to continue the conversation. I mean, because you're clear that it isn't archaeology and it's not about the putting together of these fragments into some kind of perfect artefact again. That somehow the extant condition and the layer that one is about to add, you or you collaborating with an architect, are also part of this story. They're also part of the duty of care that goes back through this thread. And so how do you come at identifying that? I mean, how do you research it? How do you work with that to identify your own position on those things? Well, the first thing probably to say is that we always work with buildings for a very long time. time. Yeah. We've looked after Brighton Pavilion for 30 years and the Sound for 30 years. And so you get to know know the building but uh, my friend Donald Insel has a very nice expression and he says Julian 
When the client becomes impossible, go and talk to the building. And that is, talking to the building is a very necessary part of understanding what it has to say to you. If you can't listen to the building mm. in terms of its pain, in terms of its joy, in terms of its achievement and its connection with those who have either occupied it or indeed designed it, then how can you possibly intervene mm. with certainty, assuredness or with confidence? Mm. And so we do have uh, to say to clients, we need time mm. to understand your building before we come forward with proposal. I mean, I kind of hinted earlier on, so maybe we should just do it more formally. So where did you study? How did you... How, how, what's Julian's prehistory? Uh, prehistory? Yeah, so how did you come to... Well, my favourite building... Yeah? <laughs> um, ..from my childhood is Coalhouse Fort and Sean Mead Fort which are close to Tilbury Fort and Gravesend Forts on the Lower Thames. Mm. They are uh, Napoleonic forts um, to carry these huge muzzle-loading 1860s cannons to shoot at naval vessels that tempt, attempted to come up the river towards London. This was as a boy growing yes, up. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I grew up there and therefore I became part of the river community. I went to school with Waterman and Lighterman's sons and I used to go on the tugs and we used to sail little boats in and out the hundred ships a day that used to come to London's port. So it was a seaborne community pilot station on the Thames where the channel pilots chained to river pilots before the ships went up to the docks where they changed to dock pilots and that whole system of having a specialist guide to get your ship which had come full of New Zealand lamb to the docks needed the skills of these highly um, specialist navigators mm. and so being part of that community was wonderful. I, I had, I went to um, a craft school, a technical college, and there I was taught by shipwrights from Chatham Dockyard, and so that meant that I had an introduction to not just making chairs and tables and carpentry, but making boats and repairing three-dimensional shell forms. I remember us doing um, mold three-ply moulded um, hulls for dinghies and that was a technology where we put silk between the layers of mahogany mm -hmm. and then put copper nails and riveted them on the inside. Today it would of course be all done with epoxy and so on. But that was an introduction to a craft-based skill. And I then decided I wanted to do architecture because it seemed to me it brought together a great many craft skills and um, enabled me to join, really, my 
my family, which is an engineering family in making things. So my father was always showing me how to do riveting and how to, you know, mend your bicycle. And I was no nothing in our house ever went <laughs> to be mended. It went into the basement to be rebuilt. So that was a great joy. Um, unfortunately, I was able to get into Regent Street Polytechnic, and that's where I trained um, near Oxford Circus. And there we had an, an art school, an engineering school, landscape and architecture, all in one building with workshops down below. So that we were challenged in our first year to do make spaghetti bridges. So we had to do uh, a long span spaghetti bridge and then we had nails which we had to load on it as a distributed load and so we stuck those on paper and put them over the top and stressed it to destruction and uh, that translation from school connection with craft to actually understanding that buildings have stresses and strains and in those days we had a Hungarian refugee to teach us engineering and he was determined that we would become architecture architect engineers in the European fashion mm -hmm. and so we did uh, structural engineering to um, near degree level so one designed a reinforced concrete building complete with all its uh, reinforcement and hoops and foundations and did wind loading and a steel building where we had to specify, and he made us do it, riveted construction, just so that one went through the exercise of putting a metal building together with a, in a traditional 19th century form before resorting to nuts and bolts. Mm. Um, and then uh, amongst the tutors were uh, two young lads called... Uh, James Sterling and James Gowan, and um, I found that uh, I was quite useful to them in making architectural models. So that led on to the, oh, Julian, will you come for the holiday? We've got to. And so my holidays were spent in architectural offices with um, uh, Cahoon and Miller, uh, Castle and Park, uh, Sterling and Gowan, as it was then and then I worked for Sandy Wilson and uh, I remember Sir Leslie Martin coming back from Sydney and I said Sydney is a long way what have you been doing he said I've been judging the Sydney Opera House uh, competition and we've selected this wonderful design by John Utzon the problem is that Jack Zunz at Arabs can't design the shells and you know the story that then arises that actually he's able to make each part of the shell a part of a sphere and once it's made as part of a sphere then there's a precast system which yeah. uh, will provide the stability that uh, John Utzon's dream... Wasn't that Peter Rice, I think it was? Peter Rice worked with Jack Zunz, yeah. that's right. But just to go back, because you've just listed a number of uh, amazing people to have had in your education, and it does remind me then of your comment about Hawksmoor, which is 
that there was a lot of architects at that time coming from more working class backgrounds and coming into architecture with, um, with not an anger, but with a with an intention. Do you know what I mean? An intention to do something. Yes, I I think I would I think I would say that they were not all. No, I mean, I mean, I won't recite the gentlemen and the no, <laughs> below the, those who were below the salt. But um, as an Irishman, I'm kind of blind to this class thing. But it is certainly true that you know uh, it seems to be harder and harder for people without means to find their way into the subject. And there's a certain form of of, of thinking being lost. Uh, I think as a result. A clarity about the value of architecture and its role. Maybe I'm wrong. I see it in a different way. It may be related to the uh, framework you've outlined. I I used to go with Jim to um, the St Andrews um, University where we did the um, halls of residence, which come out from the hill. And it was all precast concrete, heavy precast concrete. And I was very interested to see how it might be put together. And the, it was the putting together of the precast units which was the real difficulty because it was the tolerances that made the construction so difficult because they could not get the accuracy in the precast units so that the, the curious geometry of the squint cross walls sort of getting a view to the sea um, the intersections were extraordinarily complex and you had three hoops and you had to try and get um, reinforcing rods down the middle and then you had to try and get shuttering and then you had to dry pack it from the bottom and work up so it, it was very complex anyway what I wanted to say is that I saw their gym on his own and he was extraordinarily reliant on his on his mum and his mum would come into his conversation on many occasions um, and she was a, a wee Scottish lady um, because they'd come from Glasgow down to Liverpool because there were seaports and his father was a seaman and uh, she was seeing him move from the life she had had where her husband had had to go to sea for months on end and she looked after wee Jimmy, as she called him, mm. uh, even though he was a towering giant uh, above her. And I think that his passage from being... Well, coming from that background, training in Liverpool, coming to London and striving to achieve, I see him and Hawksmoor as being yeah, I was... very close in, in background, character and formative influences. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because, I mean, you're reading these people, and maybe this is a common discourse in this country, I don't know, but I had never sort of put these people together in my mm. mind. But now mm. you say it... It sort of makes sense. Well, I remember one occasion when it snowed when we were in St Andrews and the flights were cancelled and the trains were cancelled 
And so we had to wait till the morning. And I had to talk to Jim from six o'clock in the morning until six o'clock the next morning when we got... So I had to talk to this fellow for 24 hours. And I, it's one of those memories I have as a young architect thinking, how can I engage? <laughs> engage? Uh, and that is a stressful experience. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Well, I would, I'd just been thinking of all my... Hi- I had to go through all my history lessons and, you know, ask him about what did he think about the glass in Chartres, you know, and he had an opinion because as a, he, he fought in the war and, and he was parachuted into the Channel Isles and so on and Chartres just across the, that part, short part of Normandy. He, he was an extraordinary... Um, acquisitive man, a man able to see something once and he'd got it in his mind, his visual memory, and he could do tiny little sketches in his blue pencil which would recapture what he'd seen. And in the days before the internet, we were expected either to know what it was or to go and find it in the books in the library. (laughs) (laughs) You're then working with these practices, and at what point do you start getting involved in the historical reading of something, or how it might be put back together? Well, um, I worked. He did a little arts centre in um, St Andrews, Mm. and I did the design, and that was to take an existing building and two little lodges on the street side with a wall containing the whole thing. And then we put two quadrant link buildings, which was our intervention. And so there I was for the first time meeting, how can we intervene and provide, um, they were little dance studios, and allow the rooms within the house still to function with its grand stair taking up too much space and so on. And how could we get the little lodges really to work as hard as they could so that we were getting the maximum space out of the, the uh, plan form? So I suppose that was uh, my first um, intervention. Uh, with an existing building. Another one was the Olivetri fact, uh, Olivetri office in, in Surrey, where the existing building was just a great Victorian pile in the middle of a landscape. You climbed up through trees and came to this great pile, and Olivetti had taken it over as a, an office. And then Jim designed a beautiful shed of GRP with a central meeting room with four petitions that fall out of the ceiling. And um, I, I worked with Robin Nicholson on that. Robin did the new building and I was concerned with how it joined the old. And then Ted Cullinan did the conversion of the existing building with with little triangular roof lights intervening mm-hmm. and sort of making new dormers against the existing dormers. So it was it was a wonderful opportunity for a whole series of people to engage with the great man on, on a project. I remember the tragedy that, uh, that he went to... 
we we had the building um we we had it as white and and buff to begin with because we thought this is quite a radical building we'll make it quiet in its colors but in the office our imaginations rather ran away with us and we ended up with purple and yellow rather like a, a, a wasp and um, the local authority wouldn't take the change but I remember Jim going to the planning committee striving to advocate the the wonder of uh, of this wasp which had just landed <laughs> by <laughs> this Victorian villa and uh, and he had a terrible nosebleed and so his present <laughs> was confused with uh, the uh, the staunching of the 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 bleeding nose in front of the committee. Anyway, those are the little <laughs> anecdotes of life, which bring reality to the smooth publication of uh, of that sort of building in a book. <laughs> but it's interesting because uh, just thinking of students studying conservation today or historic building conservation. My wife is a fine art conservator, and she works on. Uh, fine oil paintings and medieval panels, etc. But her training was as an artist, mm -hmm. and she still is a practising artist. And in the conversations we have, say at the moment she's restoring a series of Murillo's, mm. she is using her artistic training to understand intentionality yeah. and the artist's ability to read, not as a scientific construct, whereas her colleagues with more scientific training come at it very differently, you know. Yeah. So, um, you know, one small example, Myrna would talk about how a pigment would have been aimed to discolour over a 50-year period, and Maria would have understood that. And it's, it's incorrect to bring it back to the point that it was when it was painted and the artist's intentionality was different. And it seems to me that you're describing a similar transaction, which is to do with an architectural training, understanding intent of contemporaneity as well as found work, allowing you to read into the buildings. And I'm just curious, Judy, in this conversation then, a contemporary student studying today, it, they, arriving straight into conservation, that engagement with intentionality is a harder, it's a harder thing yeah. to find, right? Yeah, yeah it is. Um, and also we have a very wide range of mix of backgrounds for our students. So we actually have uh, a, a very strong link with the Building Crafts College. So we have students who are coming from craft and from sort of working through it a different way, often by being physically engaged with buildings before they then come and they, they do struggle with, with the, the intentionality and trying to read that back, I think they find that very challenging. Mm. They're often studying alongside students who perhaps have uh, a history of art background mm. or a, you know, a history degree. And are now working in some of the more sort of regulatory areas, should I yes. say, and no, advisory no. areas, and they are very, very strong on what they consider to be the intentionality, but have little or no grasp of the, the physical manifestation and the implication and how that was also worked through. So, yeah, I mean, it seems to be a very maybe that's why it's always so collaborative. I mean, is that the issue that you? You're working well, with a whole range of people because you need that constant discussion.
Well, Jim said something to me. He said, Julian, if your office ever gets more than 15 people, you won't know the names of their wives, husbands, boyfriends, girlfriends, and whether they've got cats or dogs. Mm. And it has always been one of our intentions to remain as a studio practice, which is how we describe ourselves. And I think that within our architectural practice, um, I have this familiarity with a boat building uh, construction, sailing boats and so on, which is part of my life. Bob Sanford is the son of a carpenter and so he uh, has been with the practice for 30 years, now the senior partner. Uh, and uh, others within the practice have other backgrounds. I mean, Judy has got She's qualified as an architect, as an architect planner, and she's uh, done the conservation course at Reading and got her first. So, in other words, if you like, that's quite a sort of academic approach. And then um, we have Oliver, our historian, and we have um, we have longevity of. Uh, sort of friends within the practice. So out of the practice, there are five little sort of satellite practices that have set up. Um, Rick Griffiths and um, Gary Butler and uh, Jonathan. Um, So there are always, if you like, people we can relate to or talk to. Have you done this? Or what were the issues about a particular technical issue? Or indeed, uh, aesthetic debate. Is there a conversation we could have? But you're quite right that having worked in what is today called modern architecture, I don't accept the term, but that is a useful way of saying that you attempt to build with the materials and styles of one's day, Um, it seemed to me absolutely vital that uh, I had to find a starting point when I left the protective cloak of the practices with whom I'd worked. And I could only afford to live in Hackney because at that time it was the cheapest part of London. Hackney was absolutely saturated with abandoned derelict buildings, many of them listed. And so when you start up a practice, you inevitably get drawn into, can you help us? The first thing was to work on a public inquiry for the Maple Dean estate where the Hackney Council wanted in pursuit of a housing policy to demolish a whole Victorian suburb from 1840 um, and we were able to at public inquiry get the inspector and then the Secretary of State to reject their proposal so we saved 330 1840s housing houses in Mapledean between De Beauvoir and London Fields. And once you do that, then you begin to be, you know, known amongst a group of people. The local churchman asks you, can you help me with my leaking roof? And so on. And, and a practice then grows. Um, 
that uh, sort of very slight reputation was then picked up by the Spitalfields Trust and so I was involved in the first squat uh, that they undertook in Elder Street, uh, 5 and 7 Elder Street, and I was lucky enough to be commissioned to be the architect for the repair of those. So we bought the two houses for £4,000 each, and we sold them for 62000 which covered all the costs of repair. And they are two little, um, well, ideal little representatives of the weaving cottages of that area. The city had knocked down 200 listed buildings in what we would today call listed buildings, 18th century houses in the area since the war and the Spitalfields Trust's real ambition was to stop that process of demolition because it wasn't just it wasn't just to make way for market activity it was also a sort of, uh, well, I will say it, a sort of semi-corrupt uh, sort of arrangement between the firms who demolished them, took out all the panelling and sold it to America, which made quite a lot of money. And uh, the city benefited it by getting plots, which it could then try to amalgamate for new buildings. And it wasn't housing, it was commercial buildings. So I think it was, it was quite an extraordinary survival that you had those houses on the, well, on the edge of the city, Liverpool Street, and you're in the Fournier Street conservation area. And uh, Christine Huggins, the town planner, did the, the conservation area plan, which was one of the first in the country done for that area. And so... She became a colleague and friend, and we worked together. On, and I think in the end we did 20 or 25 houses. We worked for the, um, the Bangladesh Welfare Association, the local resident community. Uh, we worked for the um, Princeton Street, the uh, Museum of Immigration. And we've just done 14 Fournier Street, which was owned by Eric Elstop, who was the treasurer of of Christchurch um, Spitalfields where Red Mason did the repair and uh, it was one of those extraordinary events that Bob rang me up and said do you know 14 Fournier Street we've been asked to look at it and I said yes of course I know I knew Eric and um, he had said to me, Julian, I can't afford an architect. I'm going to move in and do this with friends. So I said, fine, if you need me, I'll come. And, and there were one or two visits where there was a little problem I could help with. But most recently, Bob has done an exquisite repair of the building, properly funded so that we could consolidate and repair the staircase, which goes from ground to attic. Um, without engineering advice, just using carpentry repair. And, um, well, it was fortunate enough to get the RICS Conservation Award of the Year. So uh, it was nice that we were able to convey that through the team effort on the job to our colleagues and compatriots that, you know, this was an exercise that they enjoyed as much as we did.
the ability to to re like the, what you're describing as an education here is something that is protracted and encompasses chance as well as uh, skill and lots of and I think it's a really good thing to point at because our podcast you know ostensibly was set up to talk to our students now it's become a little bit more popular than that but I think it's really important to understand that your education is this kind of ongoing activity which goes on beyond and one of the things that would we get slightly worried about today is that sometimes because there's so many qualifications and things look like they're siloized that you are forever say a design architect or you are forever a conservation architect and of course that is not true everything is hybridized conversations flow very freely from something terribly practical to something quite esoteric or from conservation to mm -hmm. design and i think that's that that thread i suppose i mean is really the, 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 I suppose the reason I suppose that I would have first heard of you uh, was because of your collaboration, say, with Chipperfield on the Noise Museum, right? And I'm just wondering, can we move to that building because it is such a singular moment? I know it's not uh, perhaps even the most significant of the works that you've worked on, but it is an interesting one because of the impact that it has had. And I'm just wondering, um, Julian, at that time where you're drawing there from... What are you? Are you drawing from Dahlgast and from other movements in German architectural culture? Or, or where is that conversation? How did that happen? Mm, that's a big question. It is a big question. Uh, let, yeah. let me just sort of say, well, I remember we, the first competition was in 1995 and then the second competition in 1997 and a half. So the Giorgio Grassi uh, won the first competition and they had a, an unhappy relationship and decided they should part their ways and so there was a second competition. And I remember on the second competition going through the doorway um, into the Noyes Museum because the interview was held in at the end of the Neobedensal and um, there sitting in a corner was Frank Geary, whom I'd known worked on at, at King's Cross with the first foster scheme for King's Cross. So I immediately went. And he was our, our great competitor. So it was David and I, and Frank was, was the competition. Wow. And um, the two approaches were totally different. Frank was being enticed to do a new dancing building, and I'll describe it as that, because it was balletic in its uh, conception, leaving a lot of the ruin of the Neues Museum in a ruined state, but just uh, occupied where conveniently it might be occupied, and then the new building providing all the facilities that were otherwise lost to the programme. And the great uh, need was seen to be to make a, a, a doorway to Lusgarten beyond the Altus Museum so that there was something which would be an eye-catcher to draw you into the en entrance, as the Neues Museum was to become, of the five museums which form a group and now we have the archaeological um, promenade underneath. 
David had done the rowing museum, and so that was his new building. And I'd worked on the Soane Museum, so that gave an opportunity to say, we have two skills which can look at how we might deal with the ruin and how we might intervene with what, we're, again, we'll call modern architecture or architecture of today. And so I think that they took a great risk, but they asked us to accept the commission, which was obviously a thrill and delight. I'd, I've worked with David for about 25 years, and we, we have enormous respect and collaboration within that friendship and time. And there are many, many buildings we've worked on together, either with JHA making a slight contribution or indeed being engaged at the formulation of the, the architect's approach to intervention. And that's particularly valuable where we're perhaps able to introduce the idea of where the soft spots of the building are. And certainly in the Neues Museum offered um, a vocabulary of opportunities for intervention, which were established really by the pattern of bombing, which had oh. come in from the, the southeast and gone out at the northwest. And so the first decision was to say that the original Stuller and Schinkel um, uh, twin courtyard central Treppenhalle staircase plan was sufficiently extant to be the background for new the new museum that the re restoration of the twenty galleries which had once existed was the uh, way in which the building might best suit, suit and serve the museum community. Um, and so that meant that the Egyptian uh, courtyard and the Greek courtyard were both to be retained as um, vol interior volumes around which the galleries uh, were disposed. So it's a figure of eight, really, with two holes, mm. two donuts, if you like, mm. joining where the Treppenhaller is. Because it's, it's, it's the first multi-storey building in Europe, multi-storey museum building in Europe, and it had three museums in it. So it has an entrance at the ground floor to the ground floor museum. The first floor museum was accessed from the back of the Altars Museum, and the upper museum was accessed through the, the grand staircase which rises in the Trappenhalle uh, to the second floor level. So it, it was not designed as one but designed as three and so what you have is you have a certain uh, discontinuity sort of each floor has a sort of completeness mm. and therefore you can develop an aesthetic which actually mends each floor, perhaps in a slightly different way. So the language of intervention and consolidation can respond to the actual character of the building. But one of the first things that I said was, and it was a challenge to, <laughs> to
to the team was that we had to rebuild the missing portions in second-hand bricks. Mm. And uh, the Berliners said, we haven't got any second-hand bricks. And anyway, they don't have a DIN standard. You've got to have, this is a state project, we've got to have a DIN standard brick. So I brought five architects over to, uh, to London and we were doing a Vambra building at Woolwich Arsenal, the, uh, the, the academy building at the time, and we, we were repairing Vambra's brickwork with second-hand bricks. And when you want um, purple stocks, you have to buy a pallet, and there are about 40 that you want in the pallet. So we'd bought 4,000 bricks. So I said, there's 4,000 bricks, you go and pick out good bricks that will fit in this Vambra building. And so five architects were required to go and get 24 bricks. So we ended up with nearly 200 bricks, which were demonstrably sound, suitable for incorporation in a Vambra building. So I said to them, are you sure you've got no second-hand bricks in Berlin? These beautiful bricks... You are available surely or I'll bring them from England as soon as I said bring them from England <laughs> there was a challenge they went back and they found two million second hand bricks on an airfield outside Berlin and that was the unlocking of um, an approach to the building's conservation which had otherwise um, relied on the Potsdam Beaux-Arts tradition of let's restore the building as it as it was. Let's just mimic it as it was in 1865. We're not going to leave any painted surface damaged. We're going to repaint it all, and we're going to use cast zinc for all the all the balustrades. All those balustrades there were all made ready to go on the reconstructed staircase. No, I remember, I mean, we were in um, Berlin in the, uh, must have been the late 19th, and we were in the reconstruction of that room of the Bau Academy, the Schinkel yes, building, where for our listeners' benefit, they made one room, a brick vaulted room with precast concrete columns mimicking stone of Schinkel's Bau Academy. And then they surrounded it with, a scaffolding holding images of the facade That's of the building. Right. And in between this scaffolding wall and this brick interior, a birch forest had grown up of weeds. And we were there for a lecture to raise money, actually, for the reconstruction, and Hans Kohlhoff was speaking. And it was oh, yes. this really surreal moment where you're in this, ex- this complete perfected recreation of Schinkel. Outside, there's these birch trees waving immediately outside the windows. And then you have the gasp of the scaffolding facade sucking and breathing in the air. And it was this amazing... I was kind of like, that is the most perfect tectonic reconstruction of that building possible today because it produced a whole new sensibility. But that kind of... um, Is it sentimentality or something that was alive in Berlin at that time and still exists? Like, were... They just weren't interested in, say, the Alta Pinacotec or things like that that had... They're not as, as richly imagined as the noise but they do set up some of the ideas that you were to take much further. Were they just not interested in that history of German post-war reconstruction? They, because, because the Neues Museum had been in East Berlin and therefore it was GDR, gotcha. yeah. 
therefore um what you've described is is west berlin berlin gotcha yeah and yeah, yeah. so therefore there was a there had to be a political negotiation as to whose style we're going to have. I understand. And yeah. that was the great value of having David and I, the two Anglo-Saxons, come in and debate with them where we could find middle ground which they could adopt as the new realisation of the new unified Berlin and then the state and then the country. Mm. And so... Um, we had to uh, say that I love the work at Potsdam and I respect it, but I don't want to do it. Yeah. And similarly, West Berlin's approach and Charlottenburg is very different. So what we had to do was to um, develop with everybody, firstly... Um, the document which becomes, if you like, the equivalent of English, the English heritage um, approach to conservation. Um, and then, so we've got conservation guidelines, and that was actually sitting around for a year, monthly meetings with about 16 people, the East German, the West German sitting separately, and then the academics and the museum and ourselves, particularly JHA led that, to, to put together what are the guidelines we're going to use for this building and then what is the concept? In other words, how are we going to introduce new work against the old work? And the issue of second-hand bricks was one of the critical parts of that. And then restoration strategies was to take every ceiling, every wall, and do graphics of them so that we could say, that is what we have, that is Potsdam, Potsdam restoration, and where in the middle do we want to uh, land? And so... Because each there are twenty galleries, you could you could look at each gallery in terms of its damage, in terms of its cultural significance of what survived, and how you would manipulate and manage that. I mean, I remember the first time going around that building, and it felt, um, and this is not a, a a negative remark, it felt exhausting because there was so much to to see. There was so much to see. And then it was the second time going around that you really began to see the collection and the building because as an architect, obviously, you're seeing all the things that you're talking about and then suddenly the building becomes familiar again. We, we didn't repair the building for architects. I know. That's what we, we gave you indigestion. That's just because you looked at what we didn't want you to look at. What we were providing were a series of tents within which there would be cases showing the exhibits of the museum and we imagined and hoped that the visitors would see the beautiful floor, they would see the cases and the objects and there would be a tent uh, a miasma above which disappeared into the distance and they would not be upset or distracted by partial or No, I agree, complete. but I think that where it would come to was that that produced a new 
connection. So that point where you arrive at Nefertiti, that mm. amazing moment where it's, it's everything is still for a second in that building. And somehow her bust in its perfection, it achieves a far greater resonance perhaps than in the building where it fully imagined as the day it was first constructed. Yes, yes. That somehow there was more here now because of that, that artefact somehow resonated. Well, I felt that, maybe incorrectly. But the popularity with the public seemed to indicate that, although maybe they weren't distracted as I was because I was fascinated by the architecture, they definitely were getting a resonant feeling from this I think, on a deeper level, perhaps. Yeah, well, maybe that's so. I think that the... I think we had the duty to take the damage that the Brits had done and to commemorate the coming together of East and West Berlin and say this is the artefact that represents the collaboration and overcoming of the torture of war. So in a sense it is a memorial and the only place in which we strove to subtract from the building was where the National Socialists, the Nazis, had painted over the dado in the Neobedensaal and obscured the Prussian blue uh, design that was behind what they laid over, which was a camouflage green. And this was so challenging that we decided that we had to address that wish by the community to expunge it from the intimacy of the interior of the building, that we had, there were 12 conservator ladies taking off one coat of paint for weeks and weeks and weeks, but it was the most rewarding and wonderful and in, uh, absolutely reassuring and and reconfirming in our joint enterprise to undertake that subtraction from the building in order to, if you like, one can be accused of adjusting history, but in the interests of the comfort of the new Germany. Mm. We always ask one question of our guests at the end, and uh, which is a simple one, Julian, which is that if you had a piece of advice to give a student embarking on the study of architecture today, or of conservation or whatever, what would it be? I have to go back to my own background. Don't assume that what you make on the computer screen is possible unless you can make it with these two hands. That's a good note to end. Thank you very much, Julian. Thank you, Julian. Thank you for listening to this episode of Register and special thanks to Judy and to Julian for their time and insights. Before signing off, uh, just a reminder to subscribe or to review or whatever the various versions of showing your appreciation might be on your podcast provider of choice and to thank the various members of the Register team. They are Christoph Luder, Matt Wells, Matt Phillips, and of course, in particular, Laura Evans, who co-produces this series of lectures and podcasts uh, with me. I do hope you can join us next time. Thank you.